remember wearing flowers in your hair? Did you buy a VW van to travel overland on the hippie trail to Afghanistan or India? Did you stand shoulder to shoulder with your fellow protesters shouting, make love, not war? Here on Boomer Bedtime Stories, we take a deep dive into the adventures of a generation that will make you laugh, make you cry, or just shake your head. Wondering, how on earth did we ever get away with that? The students were all throwing rocks at the vehicle as it went by, and then the guy was firing into the crowd, and people just started to stampede, of course. We all remember where we were when something momentous happened in the world. From the shooting of JFK in 63 to the Twin Towers falling in 2001. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Hall. And today's story is told by my boomer friend, Stan Zippen, who found himself smack dab in the middle of a revolution. Stan and I met over 50 years ago as young spiritual seekers looking for the answers to life's difficult questions and had recently joined the Toronto chapter of the International Gurji Foundation. He himself had just returned from the wilds of Central Asia wearing a beautiful calf-length Afghan sheepskin coat, John Lennon glasses, and a frizzy afro. He soon became an integral part of the Gurdjieff group, playing the drums he had brought back from his travels. Stan has an artist's love of beauty and design and could easily have turned his talents to professional photography with the stunning photos he has taken while exploring over 60 countries and cultures. Born and raised in Toronto, Stan decided to put his energy into architecture, which has allowed him to live and work in the Middle East and North African region, including Qatar, Dubai, and Egypt. The adventure we are about to hear today took place at the end of his four-year stay in Cairo in 2011. I happened to be living in Egypt at the time when the revolution happened. I worked with Egyptians. Most of all my friends were Egyptians. No one saw this coming until two days before the government caught wind of something happening and they put all of their military police force out on the streets with riot gear and shields. And I remember driving home from the office and there were thousands of riot police on the streets and nobody knew why they were there. And I had my dear friend come to visit me. He arrived the day before as well. And we were planning to go to the pyramids the next morning. And we got up the next morning. It was a Friday, which is Sunday in the Islamic world. And I got up, checked my phone, it was dead. Then I went on the computer, nothing. I thought, that's really weird. If I turn on the TV, there were no stations. And then I thought, whoa, something is going on. So we went downstairs and just across the street from was this little cafe, there were a bunch of young people. And I said, hey, is this cell phone system working? What's going on here? And they said, oh no, today's the day of the revolution. I said, what revolution? And hence began a five-day adventure that was quite extraordinary. On the first day of that revolution, people gathered. The reason they shut all the communications down is they were trying to make it really difficult for the protesters to organize. But they had already done it the day before. They all met somewhere on the west side of the Nile and they crossed over one of the main bridges 
that go and lead into Tahrir Square, which is the main central square of the city. And that's where things like this happen. These group of students said, hey, do you want to come? We're going to go down and, and protest. Show, oh, yeah, sure, an adventure. Oh, yeah. I had no idea what I was about to see. Not a clue. You're always wearing a scarf when you're in Cairo. And they said, here, some vinegar. And they poured vinegar on my scarf. And they said, when the tear gas comes, you have to breathe through the vinegar-soaked cloth and it won't get you. I said, tear gas? Well, you know, just in case. How pathetic was that? There was no cars. There was no taxis. We got to where the bridge was, where this protesters were. When we got there, we walked by the phalanx of riot-clad, gear-clad police who were all about 18 years old. They were the kids with the riot gear and plastic shields. And we walked on the sidewalk, Steve and I. We were the only two people on that sidewalk for about a mile, a couple of miles. And then we went up onto one of the bridges that crosses the Nile just so we could get a view of what was going on. And the next bridge to the south were the protesters coming along. And there were water cannons, like tanks with water cannons, with this huge plume of water trying to drive the protesters back. And the wind blows up the Nile. So it comes from south to north. And I was on a bridge on maybe a kilometer north. And in about five minutes, the tear gas came. It is truly the most noxious substance that has ever been created. It is brutal. But the vinegar worked. At that time, a riot car came up. It was like a big truck with a, a tank head on it that had a lid that flipped open. And it was driving. The guy comes up with a rifle and he starts firing into the car. Now he was firing pellets. I don't know what they were, but they a lot of kids were running towards me, blood streaming down their faces. It wasn't bullets, but it was bad enough. The students were all throwing rocks at the vehicle as it went by. And then the guy was firing into the crowd and people just started to stampede, of course. We were on the sidewalk of the bridge and then there's a stone railing beside it. And I saw these people coming and without thinking, instinctively, I grabbed Steve by the arm and I pulled him down onto the ground, onto the sidewalk that the most dangerous thing to do is run because you're going to get caught up in the stampede. And the best thing to do is lean up against the railing, stay on the ground, and everybody was running on the road. And it's true, they all went by me. And there were kids there with bleeding faces. Then we went into the square. And then we walked down to where all the action was. We met a couple of news people, media people, and one of them said, I'm going on top of a building, you wanna come? So we went up on top of this building over the square, looking down at all of the action, and there you could see thousands of people. There were groups praying. They brought their families in because it was an historic moment when this brutal 
dictator, selfish Mubarak, was about to be taken down. And they all wanted to be there as part of this experience. So they brought their families and there were kids there and there were prayers going on and there were Coptic Christians there. They were poor people. They were rich people. There were people like expats like me because there are lots of them who live in Egypt. It was an extraordinary thing to see. And then the military came in and brought their tanks in and they didn't do anything. The people look at the military as the army and they're the good guys. The, the military police are the ones who control the cities. You know, it's, it's a totally corrupt system. And they're the ones that, that take advantage of their situation. Like the traffic police are, the, are part of the military police. And they'll pull a car over and tell him he did something wrong, which he didn't do just because he can and he can get some, he needed some extra cigarette money that day or something. The army is the heroes. And when they came, people were cheering. And then they, the tanks just parked right in the middle of the square. And, and I've got a photograph of a little girl who's about three years old. All kinds of amazing, amazing things we experienced that day. Then on the way home, again, seeing Cairo without any cars, is like watching an apocalyptic movie after the bomb, where you see those pictures of the cities are all abandoned. And in Cairo, you can hardly even get in your apartment without having to negotiate traffic. We walked back. There were these local people, kind of like me, my age and younger, who had guns and rifles and baseball bats, who were there and they stopped us. Where do you live? Where are you going? because they said, fuck this. I don't trust the military police. I don't trust the army. I'm going to protect my family and my property. It was quite an amazing thing to see because owning a rifle, a gun in Egypt is illegal. And all of a sudden these guns came out, you know, so out of nowhere, they all appeared. So there was that. And then also on the way home, Air Force just decided to do a flyby with one of their jets at about 500 feet, and they turned on the burners full. It was so loud that I actually hit the ground when I heard the excite. Thought a bomb has just gone exploded. And I looked up and I see the underbelly of this jet going overhead. These are things that I'd only ever seen on television, only ever seen on movies. And in fact, I've seen so much of war and conflict on TV and on movies that when it was going on, I felt absolutely no fear. I think there was a part of my, my ability to comprehend that that was real, was compromised. And I couldn't relate to it because I'd never seen it before. But when you see a stampede of young people running, with blood pouring down their faces and they're like, you know, 10 feet away from you running at full speed, then it starts to become more real. And it was at that point we said, I think we better go get out of here. I think enough was enough. It was, it rattled us enough to know that, you know, this is a dangerous place to be. So there was a couple of days of that kind of thing going on. And then I was about to leave Egypt anyways. And the project that I was going at, the migrant work project was about to start in Qatar. So they 
they sent me a ticket. They, the flights were canceled for the first three days. And then they got me on a flight on the Tuesday. We got in the taxi and went to the airport. Well, going to the airport, which from where I lived at the best of times would have taken 45 minutes. There was no traffic, but we were being stopped every couple of kilometers by some, you know, checkpoint. Eventually we get to the airport. The flight was at three in the afternoon. We left at eight o'clock in the morning because I just, my senses were, don't take any chances. Who knows what the airport's going to be like? And sure enough, you couldn't see any floor in the airport because it was completely covered with people. And those people were where, where the bag drop-off was. The bags, they have a place you drop off the bags. The bags were piled like 20 high on the conveyor belt because it wasn't working. They, they said, look, leave your bags here. They are all going to go out. I couldn't take it on the airplane. So I figured, well, you know, we're caught in a situation. You just have to hope. Left our bags there. Went into the main hall where you line up for passport control. There were three passport officers and probably 2,000 people in that hall trying to get their passport stamp for an exit stamp. It was on a scene like I, I'd never experienced before. I realized that the only way we're going to get through is just be aggressive. All the other people there are, all the Egyptians there are pushing and shoving. I wasn't brought up to be that way, but I'm going to do it now. (laughs) Because I'm getting out of this place today. Uh, And eventually we made it through. Oh, that's an incredible story. Thank you, Stan. If you want to see one of the stunning photographs that Stan took at that time, it's on our website at www.boomerbedtimestoryradio.com. Thanks so much for joining us and to our production crew, my co-host Karen Heaps, music from Bixabay, sound effects from Freesound, Interviewing, mixing, and more hosting and more producing by yours truly, Michelle Hall. Join us twice a month for more amazing Boomer Bedtime Stories. Do you have to be a boomer to share a story on Boomer Bedtime Stories? Absolutely not. You could just be boomerish. Or you could be a child, grandchild, parent, cousin, lover, or a friend of a boomer. We'd love your perspective. Or you could tell your favorite boomer story for someone who could no longer tell it themselves. After all, everyone loves a good story. And believe me, we boomers had some groovy times. Yeah, man, it was far out. Just email us a synopsis in 400 words or less of the story you'd like to share and send it to stories at boomerbedtimestoryradio.com. At stories at boomerbedtimestoryradio.com. Drop out. Turn on. Tune in to Boomer Bedtime Stories. And subscribe. And subscribe. (laughs) You can do it. (laughs) And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.